Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast. Hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder. And me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Welcome to the show. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the latest episode of Tamarindo. Hello, Tamarindo Podcast listeners. Ana Sheila, ¿qué pasa contigo? Well, I'm trying to get my audiobooks and my reading up. So I've really been enjoying uh, listening to this book called Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. And it's think of it as rest is resistance to, to capitalism and white supremacy and specifically the grind culture that we all embody from it. It's political, it's spiritual, it's powerful, and it, it feels like poetry to my ears. And, and I'm really loving it. It's really this idea of going beyond rest as self-care, but really leading with rest and how we're resisting against the energy of grind culture in our day-to-day with even just small moments and little things that, that we do. Beautiful. Tell me again the name of the book. It sounds amazing and that we ought to pick it up. So what is the name of the book? It's called Rest as Resistance by Trisha Hersey. She's the creator of the Nap Ministry and her voice is just beautiful and powerful and it's very aligned with me right now and, and my word for 2023, which is surrender. So I'm, I'm loving it. Beautiful. Okay. And you know what? This actually makes me think about our upcoming event. So I want to let you all know, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but now we've got more details. We So we hope that you can join us in person in um, Highland Park in the LA area, if you happen to be local. We're having an event on February 23rd all about self-love. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Anishad, I have not read this book, but I think thinking of the idea of rest as resistance is also about valuing ourselves and the rest that we need. And that is why it made me think of our event. So this event is a night of conversation, mini workshop, and a mixer to reconnect with yourself and others. We gave it a cute little name. We called it Self-Love Con Corazón because it's from Tamarindo with our corazón and for you to all reconnect with yourself. And during this event, you will uncover the limitations and stories that you may have that may be getting in the way of that self-love. You're going to learn tools to start to break away past these limitations and, and these stories that we often tell ourselves that show up as limitations. And we're going to identify and set powerful intentions for the rest of the year. Because like on Latino time, we're setting our intentions a little later than January. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And you all can register right now with the link on this episode and at Tamanido Podcast forward slash events. Yes. And I'll say one thing. You could say it's because we're on Latino time, but it, it's also that we're resisting this idea that we got to start the year yes. and do all the things. No, we're against that kind of stressful energy. So exactly, exactly. All right. So on today's episode, we're going to talk to some phenomenal leaders that are doing a lot of interesting work all around an inclusive economy and specifically an inclusive economy that includes immigrants. So one thing that some listeners may not know is that Anishayla and I both are immigrants. So you are listening to a mostly all immigrant conversation on this specific episode, definitely all children of immigrants. So Anishayla, I thought it might be fun to share briefly our immigrant journey, our brief immigrant story. So what is your immigrant story, Anishayla? 
I was born in Mexico City, so I was living here with my parents. Both of them were, were teachers. Um, and as we know, teachers don't get paid enough anywhere, but especially not in Mexico. And so my parents were definitely looking for ways to potentially get to the U.S. and opportunities. My mom already had a lot of family in, in California specifically. So um, we were hoping to, to move to California, but we w my family was really privileged in, in, in the sense that there was a really wonderful opportunity where... Um, the Chicago public school system and and the Mexico City public school system, I guess they were doing this exchange where they were hiring um, Mexican teachers to go for a two year program and, and teach in Chicago, um, specifically in a, in a community called Little Village, where the where the majority of, of residents are, are Mexican and Puerto Rican. My mom knew English. And so she was an English teacher in Mexico. And so she interviewed and, and thought nothing of it. And then a few months later, she got the call. And, and so that's how we came to the U.S. So definitely feel it was a very privileged way to, to, to come to the U.S. But that, that's how we, how we got here. Yeah. And I know that you love to talk about your time in Little Village. Tell me again, and for listeners that may not have heard this before, why is that such an important time in your life and how has that sort of shaped what you do today? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a beautiful place to land because there was such a strong, it's a dense city and there's a really strong Mexican and Puerto Rican community. And even though our, our school was very low income, like everybody was on free or, or reduced lunch, we had the most beautiful cultural opportunities there. Um, I used to, uh, there was a lot of write, like writing opportunities. I used to compete in like write Spanish writing contests and poetry reciting. Like I used to do poetry reciting in Spanish and I was part of the band and um, I danced. Oh, my mom, my mom and other Mexican and, and Puerto Rican teachers started a ballet folklorico group. So all the, the, the teachers and their kids would, would dance. And it was, I just felt very connected and proud of my culture. I never felt less than. Um, and it was, and it was such a creative outlet for me. So it, it's why I, I think from the get-go, I felt confident and proud of, of my heritage. And I definitely obviously brought that along with me and, and also the value of the arts and, and community activity and, and opportunities for sure. Thank you. That is such a beautiful story and beautiful background and, and hope it's helpful for listeners to know a little bit about who they're listening to. So I'll briefly share my immigrant story because I, I think it's also different than, than um, a lot of experiences that I've heard from others, or maybe it's not actually. I mean, I think the reason my family came to the U.S., and not I think, I know that the reason my family came to the U.S. is for, for health access. My, my brother was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and my parents knew that the best quality of life that he could have would be coming across the border and, and settling in California. And I know you mentioned you also had family in California. My parents also had a little bit of family in California. It always helps to have some someone that's been there before that can help you navigate and get you get you over. So that was the, the motivation behind why we came to the U.S. And the more I've learned about migration and, and the different obstacles that many families have to overcome to get to the U.S., you know, the more that I, I recognize as you mentioned, you know, the, the word privilege and being, being able to identify where privilege has been a part of my life. So, for example, even though we were undocumented, we came on an airplane. Even that alone is a symbol of opportunity that we had to be able to get visas and just overstay them. You know? Right. <laughs> so that's my, my, my experience. And I think it's great to give people that context, that background on our immigrant background and how that shapes why we do this podcast here today. You know, we, we 
like to center immigrants when we can, because as you'll hear from our guest today, too often immigrants are in the shadows. You know, I know that's a word that 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 we a term that we associate with the immigrant experience, and too often it takes transformative federal legislation to have immigrants thrive. So you're going to hear a little bit more about that in just a second. And we are going to get into it in just a second. But to kind of bring us back to some levity before we get into the heaviness, I want to bring back a game that we played a couple of uh, episodes ago. So Ana Sheila, are you ready for basuras, matracas? Let me know how you feel. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. Very simple. So in this fun little game, I'm just going to give you a couple of uh, pop, pop culture stories, and you're going to tell me if it's a basura, a matraca, and your, your general thoughts. And of course, there's no right or wrong answers here. All right, so here we go. The first one is this week, HBO recently released the series The Last of Us, and it is starring Chilean-American actor Pedro Pascal, who is incredibly hot. <laughs> and of course, like many other shows, this is a post-apocalyptic setting. There's some sort of zombie epidemic of some sort. It's very similar to a lot of other stories that are out there. So basically, here's the question. Is it a basura or a matraca to have yet another show set in that same setting, post-apocalyptic zombie America? I don't know. I, I, I'm torn on this one. I'm torn on this one. I'm, I, I can't. Can, can we come up with a middle between matraca and basura? Because I, I do have to say, even though I don't watch a lot of television, I do enjoy that genre <laughs> because I, I'm I'm too much of a, a of a of a of a chicken to to really see scary movies. But for some reason, the zombie and post apocalyptic uh, genre is like doesn't feel that scary to me, and that's about as scary as I can go. And I kind of like the rush of it. So I guess I'll I guess I'm leaning more towards Matraca because maybe it's well done. No sé. I have to watch it. It is fantastic. I got to tell you, it's freaking an amazing phenomenal. I am obsessed already. <laughs> so, um, and, and I don't even know the video game. So, so far, I want to give kudos to the writers of the adaptation. It's it's adapted from a video, very popular video game because already the story is absolutely captivating. And I love Pedro Bas Pascal. So this is a Pedro Pascal uh, Instagram. Our Instagram is a Pedro Pascal stand account occasionally. So visit us there. <laughs> All right, here's the next one. The next one is... I don't know if you probably have heard the, about this because you're actually there in Mexico. So according to Good Morning America and a bunch of other places, this was reported that Mexico just imposed one of the world's strictest anti-tobacco laws in the world. This includes a total ban of the promotion of, and ads and sponsorship of, the, of tobacco. And this is something that the World Health Organization said, Bravo, Mexico. So a model for health. So what do you think about this? Is this basura, a matraca? What are your thoughts? It's really extreme, and I'm actually going to say it's a basura. Whoa! And I and and I don't smoke. I've you know I've tried smoking like when I was younger, but I was actually the reason I found out about this is because I was with a friend who's a smoker, and we were outside, and like there was a police car that was driving by, and then I saw him hiding his cigarette, and I was like, "What? Why? Why are you doing that?" And then was told about this new law that had just passed, and um, yeah, it just it, it feels like it feels really harsh, and and obviously smoking isn't good for you, but it, but it seems like to not for people can't smoke outside anymore, and I feel like it doesn't show compassion for folks that you know smoking. We know smoking is addicting, and so now the only places people can smoke supposedly is is inside their homes, but like if you live in an apartment apartment, your, your, your landlord might not let you smoke in there. And obviously you don't want yeah, like your apartment stinking. So I, I just feel like it, it's very extreme and it's not compassionate of, of like 
smoking is an, an addiction. So, I mean, I think it's, yes, I'm, I'm, I, I love things that promote health, but I, to just, uh, yeah, I don't know. So it's, it feels very extreme and, and, um, I don't know. That's, so that's how, that's how I'm feeling about it. Well, I really don't care too much about it because I'm, I'm not a smoker, but um, yeah, it's an interesting take. I really appreciate that perspective, Anna Shayla. All right, that's it. That's the game. Hey. <laughs> that <was> the game. <laughs> it's hard All for right, me to well, do games when there's no winning or losing, but I'm, I'm moving past what my former very competitive surrender, self. Anna Shayla, surrender. <laughs> okay, well, fantastic. I'm glad we connected. We let you all know about our event and uh, recommended a great book. All right, so here we go. I'm going to tell you who we've got shortly. We've got Jose Quinones, founding CEO of the Mission Asset Fund based in San Francisco. This is an award-winning nonprofit with innovative nationwide models for integrating financially excluded low-income communities into the financial mainstream. That is a mouthful. But basically, it's about inclusion, economic inclusion. And then we've got Nicole Anand, and she is the deputy director at Inclusive Action, where she designs and implements civic processes to change the status quo. What both Nicole and Jose have in common is that they are both part of the first ever U.S. Treasury Advisory Committee on Racial Equity. You all are going to hear why it's so important to have something like a U.S. Treasury Advisory on Racial Equity, and you'll hear a little bit more about their transformative work. So let's hear from them now. Well, first, I want to welcome you both to Tamarindo. So good to have you here. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And just to get started, I'll start with Nicole. May, Nicole, can you introduce yourself to our Tamarino listeners, what you do? It, and I also like to ask folks their why. Sure, yeah. So I'm Nicole Anand. I serve as Deputy Director of Inclusive Action for the city. I'm, as, as Deputy Director, I'm responsible for deepening our impact at the organization, managing our growth, and so on. We're an economic justice organization. We seek to eliminate income inequality, reduce the racial wealth gap, and turn community agency into power. Um, we're both a policy advocate and microfinance lender and business coach, and we're hyper-focused on serving underinvested communities, immigrants, BIPOC, and low-income folks. Um, before inclusive action, I was I was actually leading international nonprofits. Um, so I wasn't focused on my hometown of Los Angeles. Um, I was running around the world, um, uh, focused on public sector innovation. And I was working with local governments and community organizations in places like West Africa, Nigeria and Ghana, Latin America, Mexico and Brazil. Um, even Eastern Europe in the Caucasus. So I was kind of all over the place. Um, I, my why is, you know, I'm doing this work because I'm a granddaughter of Punjabi refugees. I'm a daughter of immigrants. My brother and I are the only American born of our family. You know, we've lost our land and we've had to build from scratch. And entrepreneurship has been a big path for my family for us to thrive. So I endlessly support other, I, you know, I'm in this to endlessly really support immigrants and kids of immigrants to do the same. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that background and, and what an awesome background you have and to be able to bring that back home to LA where we're very lucky to have you. So Jose, tell us about your, what you do and your why. 
I'm the founding CEO of the Mission Asset Fund. We're a nonprofit CDFI fund as well. We work with low-income immigrant communities to help them become visible, active, and successful in the financial marketplace. And uh, so yeah, we've been doing that for the past 15 years, developing products and services. But not only that, but we've been able to sort of lift up what we're learning you know, from that work and really insert that into a policy conversations, both at the state and national level, so that we can help you know, form, inform uh, how policymakers and policy advocates are, are doing their work in trying to address issues of poverty you know, in America. And so that's something that is really exciting to me as, as, as an advocate, you know, to be to, to bring what we're learning, you know, on the ground, you know, on the front lines of this work, so the policymakers can 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 you know uh react to that in real time. You know, and then that really brings my you know the question to the my why. I mean, that's that's a powerful question. And that's something that I think about every day, of course. Because every day that I you know wake up and do this work, it's like, why am I doing this work? It's this is really difficult work. It's actually very it's hard work and doing this, you know, year in year out. You know, you know, I had to. I just it's, it's not just a reminder, but it's just like it's a, it's a it's like embracing the why every day. You know, because as an immigrant, like you know, I was born in Mexico, came to this country, you know, when I was nine years old, undocumented, lived that life, you know, for 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 a long time. And then something happened, and that was in 1986. You know, there was am amnesty for people like me, for families like me. And, and at that moment, you know, about 3 million people were able to come out of the shadows and really, uh, you know, come out and integrate themselves into this country. Yeah, thank you both for, for sharing your why and your background. And, and Jose, you know, you really talked about something that was transformational, which was ab the amnesty and the economic opportunities that that brought. So um, I know that you have the perspective of getting to work with a lot of partners nationally, and I'm sure both of you are connected to a lot of efforts nationally. But I'd love for you, Jose, to just give us like a, a snapshot perspective. What does it look like today? I mean, we're, we're recovering from the pandemic. We we know we've heard a lot of language that immigrant communities were essential, that we they helped us survive. We hear all this language, but we also know that a lot of immigrant communities have, were shut out of recovery efforts and they're still experiencing the economic fallout. So can you give us a snapshot of what it looks like for immigrant communities economically right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, I mean, I wish more people would be asking that question. It's one of those things that we sort of just kind of forgot about. You know, oh, what, I wonder what happened to those people that never got any you know, federal assistance right now. You know, because people, you know, we're also enamored with this idea that, that we're coming out of the COVID pandemic. You know, because I know that we're all very frustrated just by, you know, you know, being distant and being apart and, and not being, you know, in community with each other. And uh, and, and there's, a, there's a sort of like an urgency here. I'm just trying to, wanting to get back to normal, right? Get, get it back into the sense of normalcy. And I and I get it, you know, but the reality is that, you know, COVID was, it was a very difficult, you know, crisis, you know, for particularly for immigrants, undocumented immigrants that were not, uh, um, that were not, uh, that were not provided any support, you know, to survive during that pandemic, uh, you know, because at the time, you might remember when, when when we were all being asked to stay at home and to not work, you know, the federal government did step up and actually provided assistance to people that needed help, which is the right thing to do with exactly what, you know, they had to do that. Uh, and, and it really did stabilize a lot of, you know, working families by providing them with multiple 
you know, cash infusions into their household, right? It, it was a good thing to do. And it was even better when they did that through the, you know, the, the child tax credit, you know, particularly for families with children. It's like, you know what, we're going to give you even more money so we can stabilize, the, you know, their situation. That was a good thing. So as an advocate, I, I, I you know, that was like a dream, you know, come true. You know, but for people that were excluded, and there were millions of families, particularly immigrants, you know, undocumented immigrants that had to still show up to work, uh, not to not getting any of that support in that moment of time when they needed it the most, meant that they their financial lives, you know, just were you know devastated. I mean, there was a study, you know, done that may actually um, uh, did an analysis, and they found that. Uh, a typical family of uh, four, like, you know, two parents and two children, they uh, they actually missed out, you know, on average about $11,000 on, on, on federal support that they did not receive. You know, there's a lot of language right now about, you know, um, silent quitting and we don't need to work this hard. And yes, and I really appreciate that conversation. And it's something that we talk about here on Tamarindo, about taking care of ourselves. And it's wonderful to say, but when we're not talking, when we're not thinking about the the families that have been shut out, the families that can't afford the luxury of slowing down, that, that's really what I wanted folks to get out of this conversation is to know that there, there continues to be a, a segment of the population that is invisible because we don't hear these stories. We don't hear what they're dealing with and what they're suffering. There are folks that received government support during the pandemic, and there are folks that did not receive it and continue to not receive support and always are locked out of that support. And so I'll come back to that in just a second. But, um, you know, we're seeing a few things in Los Angeles, and I'll just start with kind of maybe the most, the one of the biggest things I want to highlight, which is immigrants in Los Angeles are experiencing what I'll call intersecting crises of well-being. Mm -hmm. It's no longer just one issue of well-being. Say, oh, I need to go to inclusive action for the city for a microloan to sustain my business because traditional banks won't serve me. Okay, that's that's one issue of well-being. Um, it's also I'm behind on my rent and fear eviction. It's also my family family is suffering from multiple illnesses. It's also mental health, um, uh, you know, pushed along by the pandemic has led to perhaps abuse and challenges within my household, right? So it's all of these, we're seeing this intersection of crises of well-being. Um, the second thing we're seeing is for those that coming back to Jose's kind of framework, for those who did receive government support during the pandemic, we're seeing basically like a lag time in the challenges um, and it's hitting them now. So everybody kind of thought that, okay, immigrants are fine now. They received some support. Yes, let's celebrate. Um I mean, to Jose's point, we, we were very happy to see some of those support mechanisms, but at the same time, um, without them around now, uh, you have you ha you have people really getting hit hard. And so many of our clients at Inclusive Action are three to six months um, behind on their rent and their utilities. Our commercial tenants are experiencing the same thing, and they're running into all sorts of issues with their landlords. Um, so that's that's kind of what we're seeing for those who receive 
support, right? Is this lag time? The the last thing is many of our clients did not receive support um, during the pandemic. Um, these are the people that remain insecure and, and support has always been hard for them to receive. One example I like to talk about is um, many immigrant families live in in, in Los Angeles and elsewhere in multi-generational homes, right? And so sometimes this means that, um, you know, one or more of them may not have a lease, okay? And so right now, Inclusive Action is running a rent relief program with our partners, United Way. Um, and that program requires a lease to, to get the relief, right? So, it just is a good example of how the systems are not set up. They are set up to to lock a certain segment of the population out, um, even when the support is available. So it certainly leaves us in a position kind of thinking, how in the world do we change these systems, the standards, the norms, the structures to serve these people? We shouldn't have to be searching for workarounds, you know, constantly to get our communities the support that they deserve. Absolutely. Um, and maybe uh, sticking with you, Nicole, I mean, if you had a magic wand, what would be a couple of things, uh, uh, changes that we, we you'd like to see really soon that could help bring some of that relief? It's not really about picking policies. It's more about changing the way that policy is done in general, which is mm -hmm. moving towards a place where policymakers are working to center the voices of those that the policies impact and bringing them into creating those policies, vetting those policies, um, and so on, evaluating those policies. And I know we talk about this a lot, but it's still not, it's, you still rarely see it. You know, you really rarely see when we're dealing with an unhoused crisis, you rarely see unhoused folks actually shaping the policies um, that are meant to, to help them. Thank you. I think that's a fantastic answer because it's really about the approach. Like, how do we center the people with lived experience to help shape the policies so that you're not running into these obstacles that had those folks been involved in the first place, then we wouldn't have those issues. And in fact, what you talked about makes me think about the Treasury Advisory Committee on Racial Equity, which you both are on, because this is, I think, an example of how you can bring um, lived, exp lived experience and perspective in how we approach things. So maybe I'll talk to Jose first. Tell us a little bit about this and what does it mean to you to be part of this committee? Uh, working with the Treasury is really it's phenomenal. I mean, let me tell you, it's it's, uh, it's one of those things that the Treasury Department it's it's an incredible they have incredible sort of power and ability to sort of change and shape, you know, uh, the financial lives of all of us, right? So the way I look at it is like we're providing them with uh, you know real time consulting, right, on how to think about the issue so that when they you know, write, you know, proposals or rules or even just the framing on how to think about these issues. They do so with the, with, uh, with the insights from people like us. And so I think that's actually really, really, really significant. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be in that, in that particular room. I know, Nicole, I mean, I know, you know, you might feel the same, but, you know, but, but this is really where, 
you know, where our, our, our work on, on the ground, you know, really meets the, the policymakers, you know, you know, in, in a way that we can help shape the way they implement a lot of programs and services. Yeah, that's very cool. So, Nicole, yeah, what would you add to what is what it's been like to be on this committee, what you hope can, to accomplish? Tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, I mean, I echo everything that Jose is saying. First of all, I mean, it is really such an honor to be on the committee and to be alongside incredible leaders like Jose, right? It means so much to me. It means a lot to inclusive action. And I hope we can deliver to the communities that we serve by being by being there, by being on this committee. Um, you know, as much as I'm a big believer that the quote unquote um, table, you know, the powerful table needs to be converted into actually all of us sitting around a fire, um, the powerful tables will continue to exist and will persist in it. It matters, um, you know, being at one, being at one like this allows us to bring in the community voices that they haven't heard. And so, as Jose said, like this hasn't been done before. Not not only has racial race inequity not been a part of sort of the lingo of the treasury, community voices have also not been at the table. So it's both. Thank you both for spending time with us. Um, I think you you've really helped us think about this segment of the community. You've helped us think about how important it is to center voices of those with lived experience. And you've you've helped us feel really grateful that both of you are there to help lift these, these issues up. So thank you both for spending time with us. How can we keep up with you? So Jose, where can people learn more about you and Mission Asset Fund? Well, thank you, Brenda, for having this conversation again. I mean, it's, uh, it's always great to uh, connect with you about this and, you know, and, and really very excited to see the success of your podcast and your work. So, so kudos to you, and and I wish you you know more success in the years and the years ahead. Uh, in terms of you know connecting with me, definitely you know I invite your listeners to go to missionassetfund.org. Uh, you want to connect with me directly? You can always send me an email at jose at missionassetfund.org, and we can start the conversation there. Thank you, and Nicole, how do folks um, keep up with your work? Yeah, thank you so much, Brenda, Jose. This has been really, really a lovely conversation. Um, very excited for people to listen in. Um, I can be reached, same same sort of deal, inclusiveaction.org or Nicole at Inclusive Action. Um, and just would love love to continue the conversation with anybody that's interested. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay, well, that was a, a very interesting conversation. So much to learn about, but the big takeaways is that we need to center people with lived experiences when we are shaping policy, and then we're all going to be better for it. So, Anna Sheila, now that we are back from that interview, what is your matraca? My matraca for this week is the deplaning row by row that they're still doing on Mexican flights. I love it. I feel like folks just act hella crazy. Normally when the plane lands, everybody needs to get up like they're not all going to get off the plane. Everybody cuts people. It's just, I'm a sensitive person and I don't like all that energy of like, not violence, but like almost. And so I really like that. I feel like 
on these Mexican flights, I treat the 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 flyers or whatever. What what do you call what do you call people that are I guess flyers. flyers. <laughs> like, it kind of feels like you're in a classroom, right? Like how you would like the teacher would be like, line up in a row. But I really appreciate like t- them telling you that you're getting up bo- row by row. Me encanta. So that's that's what I'm giving a matraca to. The planning row by row. I love that. No, absolutely. Because as soon as you land, I don't know why every everybody just shoots up. Like why? It's so much. You cannot you can't do anything about it. Row by row. I love it. Let's make it a policy forever. Yes, let's keep going. <laughs> but they're not doing it on American flights anymore. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. Este, ¿qué tal tú, Brenda? What's your matraca for this week? My matraca goes to the social media account Peligroso Valley. They are so much fun. I am constantly sharing their content. It is just such a joy to watch what they do. Basically what it is, it's it's like Latinx videos, maybe cholos, maybe your your mom, whoever. <laughs> but what they do is that they then cover that video by giving it some new wave rock or rock in espanol music. And it is so much fun. I'm like I said, I'm constantly sharing their content and I learned a little bit more about them. So they are an alternative clothing brand based in Los Angeles. Quote, we are all hood Latino kids who grew up listening to everything rock and rocker fool. <laughs> I love that. We're all hood Latino kids who grew up listening to everything rock rocker fool. I love it. Just fantastic. Y'all should follow them right away. I love it. I'm not a rocker fool, but I, I've had a lot of friends that are, and um, I appreciate I appreciate them. <laughs> so, Ana Sheila, what goes in la basura for you? I'm putting in la basura the word ladies. I don't ever want to be called. A, I n- I've never identified as a lady, Brenda. And it's so <laughs> and the more that people keep using it, the more I'm like, can you can everybody please can you please stop calling us ladies? Thanks, ladies. Por favor. Yeah. No me llamen una lady, no soy una lady. <laughs> Nunca he sido una lady. Yeah, <laughs> and I think you've, you've thrown this in la basura before, but it's okay. They can, yes, but they can hear it again. The other thing we should consider throwing away is all gender terms. Let's <laughs> just not to do gender terms. And I know that it's been a practice for, for both of us, and we've been very good about not saying you guys. It takes, it takes effort. And now let's put in la basura ladies. Yeah, absolutely. No gender terms. What is my basura? I'll tell you my basura. So my basura is books that are so bad that they're inspirational. (laughs) Books that are so, so bad. And the reason why I find them inspirational, because I'm realizing, oh, shit, I could probably write something better than this. This is terrible. This is absolutely terrible. So that's my basura. Terrible books. Uh, Are you are you do you continue reading them? Well, unfortunately, this one I I did continue reading because I was like, gosh, I'm so far in. I need I need to know who freaking killed the dude. So it, it reminded me of Glass Onion, which is also terrible. I I guess I'm having bad luck with mysteries that are just not good. <laughs> These are horrible. So I did want I did keep reading just to figure out, okay, well, who the, who did it? Who did it? You know, it was completely lousy. It was a terrible book, but I did appreciate that this particular book that I'm talking about. Uh, it's called Arsenic and Adobo. It is terrible, y'all. Don't read it. But <laughs> it did have a lot of uh, mention of food. And it, it, the protagonist is, is Filipina. And she talked a lot about ube. And so I did have a craving for ube. And ube is delicious. So in, in one way, I appreciate that. Gotcha. Beautiful. <laughs> and what is your calma, Ana Sheila? My calma, I guess I'll bring it back to rest is, is resistance just to, to close, close on that. Um, what I'll share is that she really, you know, she really mentions how, how hard it can be to prioritize rest 
given um, many of our identities, and and she's especially speaking, specifically speaking mostly to, to BIPOC folk in, in this book. And I think what she says is like, we have to find a way to really resist that energy of the grind. And, and you know, there, even if we don't have a lot of time, how is it that we're leading with that energy and looking for small moments where we're, we're resisting grind culture? So it's, it can be just when you're not immediately responding to messages, for example, that's a way that you're prioritizing rest. When you, even how you greet people, honoring, um, before, let's say you're messaging someone, before you ask them to, to do something, can you honor them as people with how you greet them before you ask them for something? Or um, not going on social media whenever you have a down moment. So those are really small ways in which we're resisting against always doing, always grinding. So um, I just wanted to share that as a calma because I've been incorporating it and thinking about it a lot. And I should have just called me out because I will immediately text her with the things that I need because I assume that the how are you, how you doing is implied, but I will take an effort to text a little bit more. <laughs> now, um, my, my calma goes to Weekend Jeff. So Jeff is my husband, as some of you may know. And when he is disconnected, when he's not his work self, he is just so awesome. <laughs> and I love it. And, and, there is this special lightness that occurs whenever Jeff and I cross the border. Like as soon as we're in Mexico, it's often because we're doing something fun. And instead of therapy, what we do to keep our almost 10 year marriage amazing and thriving is we go to Mexico pretty much on a quarterly basis. And it is just beautiful and wonderful and rejuvenating and romantic. We just came back from Valle de Guadalupe and Jeff and I did a couple's massage. It was beautiful. So I just love Weekend Jeff. And Weekend that he gives Jeff. Me the I love that. I want to experience Weekend Jeff one day. <laughs> <laughs> He's great. He's great. Weekend Jeff in Mexico. That's what I highly recommend. So well, with that, everybody, I hope we see you soon. We've got, in addition to the event we just mentioned earlier at the top of this episode, we still have also for you, we have a podcasting workshop that's happening. You can check out all the information at Tamarino Podcast forward slash events. You could also always contact us if you've got ideas, you've got feedback, contact at tamarindopodcast.com. And of course, please do share episodes with friends, specific episodes. That's how we hook them. So <laughs> we hope to hear from you. Thank you. Y ponte un suéter. Bye, y'all. Abrazos, besos. Ciao. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Ana Sheila Victorino. Our producers are Mitzi Hernandez and Augusto Martinez of Sonoro Media. Our theme song is by Jeff Ricards. If you want to support our work, please rate and review Tamarindo Podcast on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Get in touch with us at tamarindopodcast.com. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa. Eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. 
Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI FPEI 220099. ¿Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.